Numbers chapter 15. We'll begin at verse 32. It's a simple story, really. Not too long. Four verses or so, five verses. And here's how it goes. Now, while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. Verse 35. And then the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, mark that, the Lord said to Moses, the man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. God, we need your help with this one this morning. Because, Lord, we believe that you're a God of grace and a God of love and a God of mercy, but we do not see that in this story. Father, just honestly, we read this and at face value, we wonder how could you possibly have condemned a man to death for picking up sticks even on the Sabbath day. I pray, Father, that you would illuminate our minds here, but more than that, that you would open our hearts. For, Lord, we don't just want to understand the story. We want to see you. And we want to know you. We want to gain understanding, Father, of your nature and your character. And we want to see Jesus and how all this fits together in one unified word. So, Father... Speak to us. Holy Spirit, be here among us. As we know you are, we ask that you would just open our hearts, our minds, and our ears to hear your word today. And to understand it and to walk out of here feeling even more joyous of your presence in our lives than when we came in. Thank you, Father. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Tom, you might, I don't know if the other mics are muted, but there's kind of some feedback up here on the stage. So you might want to just mute those and see what that does. So Numbers 15, verses 32 through 36, we see this interesting story. Again, it's one of those that you read, and as you're coming across it, you stop. You, you slam on the brakes. You say, wait just a minute. How can this possibly be? How bad could it possibly be that a man picks up sticks on the Sabbath? Granted, he's violating the Sabbath day. Okay, I get it. But the Lord says, kill him. God says, stone him. Now we can look back in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10, says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In the Ten Commandments, God says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. Okay, it's important. He goes further, though, in Exodus 31, verse 14, he says, You are to observe the Sabbath. It is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. So again, God lays down a very serious law, a very strict law, and this man shouldn't be surprised. Because the law was given ahead of time, God gave the very clear warning, Anyone who works on the Sabbath shall be put to death. But it still seems harsh. When there are times where I tell my kids, okay, if you disobey me in this, I'm going to knock you into next week. (laughs) When they disobey me into this, which happens, guess how often they've been knocked into next week? Never. (laughs) Because they've got their softy father all figured out. All they have to do is tell me how much they love me and (laughs) it all goes away. 
Don't get cocky, kids. <laughs> but the man in our story, here he is. He goes out gathering sticks on the Sabbath, and he is stoned for it, which, by the way, proves true the old adage, sticks and stones will break your bones. <laughs> now... <laughs> Now again, I don't know about you, but you read this story and you go into defense mode. I immediately start making excuses for God. Well, it was a circumstance or something about it. It has to be something else that we're not seeing here. And yet I read it and it's very clear. The guy was picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And God very seriously responds to that and says, He shall be put to death. You take him out. And it was the Jewish method, by the way, of of killing someone, of execution, with stoning. Do you realize, by the way, that Jesus should have been stoned to death if it was done by the Jews? But that right was taken away from them when Jesus was about 12 years old. That right of capital punishment was stripped from the Jewish people and therefore, fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus was crucified, as the Old Testament scriptures say, that Messiah would be. Amazing how God works all those things out. But this man should have been stoned to death for picking up a little firewood. That's what I call punitive damages. I mean, this is serious. It seems to me, and you might want to back up in the front row because lightning could strike, but it seems to me a little silly. It seems to me a kind of a ridiculous punishment for a law that, yeah, it's important. I get the idea, Lord, of, of resting. But if I choose not to rest, if I want to work, then who cares? What's the big deal? Who is this man really hurting by picking up a few sticks on the Sabbath? Of course, you all probably know this, but America is no stranger to ridiculous laws. There are plenty of ridiculous laws still on the books. Hartford, Connecticut, it's still illegal for a man to kiss his wife on a Sunday. In California, there is a $500 fine for anyone caught detonating a nuclear device within the city limits. I guess it's okay outside of town. Oh, you're going to love this one, Alabama. It is against the law to flick a booger in the wind. I don't know if that's when there are other people around, you know. It's on the books. In Nebraska, if a child burps during church, his parents can be arrested. Don't try it, kids. In Massachusetts, if a preacher tells a joke, ten years in prison. Which is why I'm a pastor in Washington. Not pretty. And in Seattle, Washington, by the way, I love this one, it's illegal to carry a concealed weapon over six feet in length. But be careful, my friends. Be careful lumping God's law in with men's stupid laws. Because God's laws are never stupid. Psalm 19.7 tells us the law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. Which is why gang. Which is why even though we live now in the age of grace. Where we are under the grace of God. Which we'll talk more about in a few minutes. 
Even though we live in that place, it is still of great value to spend time in the Old Testament law because the law is perfect. Oh, we're not. But the law is. The Old Testament is. It's restoring. It's enlightening. And it makes the simple wise. And I know a lot of us could use that. (laughs) But gang, yet for all this, the severity of punishment for this one man's labor on the Sabbath does seem at first extreme. Which is why we're pausing to consider this today. To think about this story and what really went on. To take it at face value and understand that this man violated a law and was punished the most severely for it. He was killed for it. Now... Before we go back to the story, there are three things I want you to know specifically about the nature of God. It's important to understand this about God's character and what Scripture says about the character of God before we can look at the story. Because if we just take the story out and try and understand God's character based on this little passage here, we're going to miss who God is. So listen, three things to jot down about the Lord that the Scripture tells us. And number one is this, God is unchanging. He is unchanging. From first to last, from beginning to end, throughout all eternity, the one person, the one being who never changes is God. He is always the same. He is 100% consistent. He does not change. Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, God says, I the Lord do not change. I am unchanging. And gang, listen, he didn't change. He didn't even soften up between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is the same. Now people will read the Bible and say, oh, God of the Old Testament is a little scary. You know, wiping out people and putting men to death for picking up sticks on the Sabbath and all that stuff. Old Testament God, uh, Revelation God. uh, But in between, that's the God I like. (laughs) I like the Jesus God because he's about grace. And so there are those who would say Jesus and God just totally different that the God of the Old Testament shouldn't even be lumped in with the God of the New Testament. And there are those who will say no, He just changed. And that 400 year span of time between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New being written God thought about things. His character progressed. He learned about himself from his dealings with man and He shifted His perspective. And that's heresy. Because God does not change. The same God who created the world is the same God who died on the cross. The same God who called for the punishment of this man is the same God who died to save man. God does not change. And James 1.15 tells us in the New Testament, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. There is no change. And Hebrews 13.8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So understand that before we get back to the story. God is unchanging. Number two, God's relationship with Israel is unique. His relationship with Israel is unique. I've shared this quote before, but Tevye, the main character in Fiddler on the Roof, is always having conversations with God throughout that musical. And by the way, if you've never seen that, I highly recommend that you go out and watch Fiddler on the Roof. But at one point, Tevye is talking to the Lord. He says, Lord, I know we're your chosen people. 
But couldn't you just choose someone else for a change? God has a unique relationship with the people of Israel. He has for all history. He still does, as we've talked about many times recently. It, by the way, is one of the reasons we're going to Israel, to understand that relationship better. But God, when He chose these people, chose them so that Messiah could come through them, but also chose them so that we could have a living example of God's interaction with a people. Of his expectations, of how those people fail, but how he continues to keep his promises to them. He has a unique relationship with Israel, unlike any other nation or people group. Micah chapter 7 verse 18 says, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. David Barron in his excellent book called Israel and the Plan of God says the following. He says, not only does Jewish history prove the fact that man cannot, by his own searching, find God. It also teaches the fact that, apart from divine grace and power, man is incapable of retaining the knowledge of the true and living God. Even after it's been divinely communicated to him. Now that's awesome. Do you realize what he's saying and what we see in Israel? Even when God comes down to the people of Israel and says, Here I am. I am that I am. I'm God. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. Even after he does that, he reveals himself. He communicates himself to the people of Israel. What do they do? They rebel. And he communicates again. He shows them his love. He shows them grace. And what do they do? They rebel. Why? Because they cannot retain the knowledge of the Father. You might say, Well, then how do we do it? We have the Holy Spirit, gang. Israel didn't have the Holy Spirit poured out on all the people. Moses had the Holy Spirit in him. The 70 elders of Israel, at least at one time, had the Holy Spirit poured out into them. But the rest of the people didn't. Why did they keep falling away from God over and over and over? Why did they keep missing who He was? They didn't have the Holy Spirit. You do, if you're a Christian. You do have a power beyond yourself not only to see God, but to seek God. So God has a unique relationship with Israel and God is unchanging. Unchanging. And number three, and I just had to use this word. I've never used it, I don't think, before in my life. But God's righteousness is ubiquitous. Isn't that impressive? What does it mean? I don't know. I just looked at it. I needed a U word, so I stuck it in there. No, ubiquitous means that God is everywhere. It means ever-present, and that's what His righteousness is. It is ever-present. It is everywhere. His righteousness, His perfection. Psalm 19, verse 9 again says, The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Even in the story we're studying this morning, His judgments are true. He is righteous altogether. His response to this man's violation is perfect. It's not wrong. His righteousness is ubiquitous. Lamentations 3.22 And this coming from Jeremiah in the throes of hard times he says the Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. His compassions never fail. 
Now this is the character of God, gang, in a nutshell. And there's so much more that we can look at and understand. And we will be doing so for all eternity. But He is unchanging. His relationship with Israel is unique. And the Lord's righteousness is ubiquitous. In other words, it is everywhere. It is for all time. He never makes a mistake. Ever. He is completely flawless. So when you run across... You know, i got to tell you guys. I just looked down on the left page of my notes... Right out there? They're back. Just gonna move back a bit. That's okay for you. Oh, that's great. By the way, hey, turn in your Bibles quickly to Psalm 84. You gotta see something. This is not in the notes. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But you just got to see it's perfect timing. Oh. Okay. Check this out. Psalm 84. We're going to be here all day. Psalm 84, verse 1. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird has also found a house. And the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young, even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. What does that mean? Listen, and this is actually pretty amazing. It's not just here. The psalmist writes in Psalm 84 that the birds may nest on the altars of God. That would mean in the tabernacle. That would mean in the temple. The birds found their ways in there. And you would think, oh, blasphemy. Clean the birds out. No, it was wonderful that they found their home in there too. He loves the sparrows. I'll clean this off later. Now back to our story. Numbers 15. A little sideline there. Thank you, little bird. That's just gross. And you know, when I turn the page, it's going to be... Thank you. Thank you. Here, hang on to that. Okay, we'll see you later. Back to the story. And we need to understand. All the other things we've just talked about, about the nature of God, you've got to bring that understanding into every story. When you hit a tough passage, sometimes what people do is they come across a passage like this and they just think, oh, I can't serve a judgmental God like that. I can't love a God that is that unmerciful. I tell you, you've got to approach it understanding the character of God is perfect. It's unchanging. It's unique with Israel. There's a reason why things happen with Israel that's different. We need to understand the unchanging loving kindness of the Lord that is perfect and it's eternal. And then when we come back to a story, we start out with this assumption that God is right. He's right. Therefore, if God is right and what happens here is righteous, now we can begin to break down the story and try to get it. To try to get it down. He says, verse 35, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Why does God take this singular violation of the Sabbath, this breach, so seriously? We don't have to guess at motives here. 
We don't have to sift through mounds of circumstantial evidence to understand God's behavior. All we have to do is ask two simple questions. Number one, why was the man gathering sticks in the first place? Why was he gathering wood on the Sabbath? The answer is very simple. To kindle a fire. He was gathering sticks for the purpose of kindling a fire. Exodus 35 verse 3 says, For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath, a complete rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. He's picking up sticks for what reason to kindle a fire? Double violation now of God's law. You might still say, well, big deal. Listen, maybe it was cold that afternoon. Maybe his tent was just a little uncomfortable. Maybe it wasn't warm enough for his liking. You should have been here Wednesday night. Because it was not warm enough for any of our liking. We were out of fuel, and so the heater wasn't blowing, and we sat here just going through the Word of God. The upside was it was too cold for the birds. But you know what warmed my heart on Wednesday night? I've just got to share this. It was watching everybody get into God's Word. It was hearing the response. It was seeing in the eyes of those midweek Bible students who were wrapped up in three, four blankets with their little Bible shaking. It was watching people so in love with the Lord that it didn't matter that it was cold. Well, it mattered to this guy. It was important to him. He needed something to stoke things up a bit. And gang, when we're not focused on the grace of God, we do the exact same thing. What does that have to do with it? When we're not focused on God's grace, we start picking up sticks. We start trying to stoke it up. We start trying to make things happen. And as we do so, as we stoke it up, as we build our little fire, we start to think, yeah, pretty hot. Our works are pretty impressive. The things we do, we do for God, and we start to think, wow, I can get a lot done for the Lord here. I can be a busy guy, and in by busyness, boy, I I can really be impressive. The thing is, and God knows this about human nature, you can only do this for so long, and we start to burn out. The harder I work, gang, the harder it gets to work. The more I try to do for the Lord, the more I try to live out religion, and keeping this rule and that rule and this law and that law, the harder it gets. Has anybody ever experienced that? I'm working hard here, Lord, and I can't keep this up much longer. And so God offers us something amazing in Jesus. Grace. Rest. Restoration. Matthew 11:28, one of my favorite verses. Jesus says, "Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest." Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What are you saying? Listen, Hebrews 4 verse 9 says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The one who has entered his rest has himself rested from his works, just as God did from his. Therefore, let's be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. That is, Israel's disobedience. What's the Sabbath rest? It's Jesus. Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus is the Sabbath. The Sabbath itself is this amazing picture of Jesus Christ to whom we can come and enjoy rest. And what this man in our story should have been doing is enjoying the day. But things were not to his satisfaction. 
Things are not the way he wanted them to be. So he begins to work. He begins to dig in. He begins to pick up these sticks. And as he plays this game of pick up sticks to start a fire, he stokes up his own disaster. We do the same exact thing. Now you may say, okay, Rick, but it still seems like the punishment is awfully harsh. If God is so gracious, why does he respond so brutally? Maybe, yes, this man was doing something more than he should have been doing. Trying to add to the day. Trying to give more comfort to the day. Working harder. Maybe he shouldn't have been. But was the punishment correct? Does it fit the crime? Brings us to the second question we should ask. And that's this. Why is this story here? I don't mean in the Bible. I mean in this passage. In this chapter. Placed where it's placed. Why is this story right where it is? I tell you this to remind you Bible students that context is critical to understanding things. We love to reach in and pull out a single verse or a couple of verses and say, see, this is for me, or see, that's not for me, or this makes no sense. But when we go back, start reading several verses before, reading several verses after, and get a sense of the flow of things, it makes sense. So listen, go back a few verses to verse 30. God is speaking to the people through Moses. He says, but the person who does anything defiantly, defiantly, whether he is a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. He just got done telling him, listen, if you sin, you're going to sin. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to sin even not innocently, but ignorantly. You're not going to realize you've even done some things wrong. There's no way you can know everything you've done wrong. I'll forgive you. I've got you covered. That's what the sacrifices are for. But anyone who sins defiantly, that person shall be cut off. Anyone who says, in your face, Lord, whatever, that person deserves to be cut off from among his people, verse 31, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on them. And then God gives us a vignette of exactly what he's talking about. For this man wasn't just gathering sticks on the Sabbath. He was doing so defiantly. I'm going to do it because I can do it. Trust me, guys, go back through Exodus, go through Leviticus, and just count how many times God says breaking the Sabbath is punishable by death. This guy was not ignorant of this. He knew the law, but he said, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. I am not comfortable with things as they are. I'm going to push them forward. I'm going to make for myself a nice warm fire here. And whatever the Lord says, that's his business. I could really care less. And so God makes it clear that kind of an attitude is punishable by death. By the way, this word defiantly is an interesting word in verse 30. It's two words actually in Hebrew, yod and rum. Yod, rum. What does that mean? Yod is hand, room is lofty, high, or exalted. In other words, it's high-handed. Defiance is high-handedness. It's saying, literally, talk to the hand. Whatever. And that's what this guy is doing. We're not talking again about a sin of ignorance. We're talking about a sin of absolute awareness. He knew what he was doing. God puts the story here as an example of defiance. And it doesn't matter if it's about sticks on the Sabbath or adultery. Defiance is defiance. Anytime you're shaking your fist at the Lord, anytime I'm saying, I know what your rules are, God, but I don't want them. I know who you are, Jesus. I understand about your sacrifice on the cross, but I didn't ask you to die for me. Sin of defiance. 
Why is that kind of person cut off? Because you yourself have cut off the means by which you can be saved. I don't need Jesus. I'm a good person. I will live and die on my works, on the sticks that I pick up, on the fires that I build. This is how I'm going to live and die. And when it's all said and done, and I come before Judgment Day, if there is a Judgment Day, then I'm going to say, God, I was a good person. Look at my fires. Look at all the sticks that I picked up along the way. Look at what works I've done. Isn't that enough? And God will say, let's take a look. Revelation chapter 20 at the end of the chapter says everybody's going to have that opportunity. Those who reject grace, everyone's going to have the chance to show their sticks, to prove to the Lord how much their works were worth. But it's not going to be pretty, gang. Part of the reason the Lord took the Sabbath so seriously again is this. Colossians 2.16 says, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And we've talked about this, the feasts and the festivals of Israel, even the Sabbath day, they're all pictures of Jesus. They're all to lead us toward Jesus. Therefore, God takes them seriously. And Jesus himself said, Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The idea is not just keeping the Sabbath, the idea is the heart behind it. He says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Why? Because the Sabbath pictures Jesus. Rest, peace, relaxation, redemption, settling in. You know the kind of day I'm talking about. It's, it's that Sunday afternoon, perhaps for you, where you go home after worship. You have nothing on the agenda for the day. The lawn's a little long, but you think, I'm not mowing it today. You get out the lawn chair, you get out the soda, you sit down, and you just enjoy the sun. Which I know isn't all the time in Washington, but summer's coming. <laughs> and you relax. And you have those just pristine moments where you think, oh, and the little beer commercial comes to mind. Does it get any better than this? You know. Yeah, it does. In Jesus. In Jesus. He is our Sabbath. So, Rick, you're saying this man was stoned to death for not keeping a picture of Jesus sacred? Is that what you're saying? Not at all. Don't misunderstand. I'm actually drawing a different picture here, and I think you may be picking it up. You cannot separate something here that is so foundational in God's behavior out from God, and that is His grace. His grace, His grace, His grace. Listen, John chapter 19 verse 30 tells us the last words out of Jesus' mouth before his, He died was teleo, teleo. But what's that mean? It is finished, complete, done. You can't add one thing to what He had just done on the cross and you can't take away from it. All of the work was perfectly accomplished by Jesus at the cross and you can't add a stick to it. You can't put anything alongside it. Last week uh, we talked about our Baha'i buddy who showed up on Wednesday night and he called me a Pharisee. Which is the first time, by the way, in my life that I've been called a Pharisee. That was kind of cool. And I thought about that. Do you realize what the problem with the Pharisees was? It wasn't even so much their legalism, it's that they thought they were hot. They thought they had it all together. They were all about works and grace appalled them. They couldn't understand it. It made no sense. We're the keepers of the law. We've got it all together. Look, look at our 
our tassels. Look at our phylacteries. Look at all the things that we wear. And look how we hold ourselves. And everybody knows how godly and righteous we are. We've worked hard for this position. John chapter 6 verse 28. The people said to Jesus, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And i got to believe that they were thinking about the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders who were hard-working religious guys. Well, how do we do this? I'm a simpleton. I'm just a little farmer. How do I, I'm a shepherd. How do I do this, Lord? How do I work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God. Ready for this drum roll? That you believe in Him whom He has sent. Well, that's easy. Yes! <laughs> exactly! It's easy! It's not about keeping these rules and this heavy burden on our shoulders. Jesus says, my burden is light. It's grace. Gang, a defining characteristic of all the cults is again the emphasis of the works of man. That's what defines hard, cold religion that will never get you home. It's always, oh yeah, believe in God and. It's believe in Jesus Christ plus. It's always something extra. You may have had a Mormon missionary come to the door of your house and knock on the door. If you have and you've had a conversation, oftentimes this is what they'll say. Read the words of the Book of Mormon and see if your heart doesn't burn within you. Jesus is great. Plus. Jesus is wonderful. And. Believe in Jesus. And the Book of Mormon and the writings of Joseph Smith God's prophet and you will be saved Jesus says this is it this is it nothing is added to it here's the work of God believe in him whom he has sent Jesus Christ and that's it you don't add to it Gang, if we're trying to make the Sabbath rest of Jesus better by our works, by the things that we're doing, ultimately the fires we build will engulf us. They will either burn us out or they will burn us up. It's one or the other. And I want to ask you a question. As Christians, as believers in Jesus, why do you do what you do? What is your motivation for doing anything, quote-unquote, for the Lord? Why are you doing it? Are you just gathering sticks? Are you playing out Jesus plus? Is it something extra you're trying to add? Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 3.12 If any man builds on the foundation, which Paul just tells us before that was Christ, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. It's going to be revealed with fire. How does that look? Several of you know that Andrew Campbell did a lot of work on my home. And he was in the house, especially the last three weeks. I mean, it was just, things were flying, just trying to get everything done for that house. And when it was all said and done, and you're welcome to come to my house anytime and just see, Andrew's an artist. He's a craftsman, and he's very good at what he does. But after it was all said and done, we're sitting there, we were, we're sitting on the steps of my house, and we were uh, staining the, the railing that Andrew had put together. It's a really cool railing. It's all made out of alder, and it's real naughty, and kind of, not naughty bad, but naughty like, you know what I'm saying. And we're sitting there staining this thing, and as we talked, we said, you know, all this is going to burn. All this hard work that went into all the wood and the, you know, the artistry of what he did, it's all going to burn. 
But you know what wouldn't burn? What's not going to burn? The three weeks we spent together working. That relationship time. That, by the way, took our relationship from here and put it over here. Made it even better. Not because he was doing something for me, but because we had time together. That's something that when tested by the fire of God, it's going to last. That's something the Lord, the Lord will say, remember that house that you built for it? Yeah, burn that up. But you know what? The time you guys spend together, that's got eternal value. I like that. I like that. And that's how grace works. What does God's grace teach us? Let me give you one last thing. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians. We'll end there this morning. Ephesians chapter 2. What does God's grace really tell us? A couple of things and we're done. This is just awesome. Ephesians chapter 2 is the chapter, by the way, if you pick one chapter out of the Bible to read over and over and over and over, I'd, I'd recommend this one. It's amazing. Paul says in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, he says, God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Isn't that amazing? Not when you had it together. Not when you showed up, the Lord speaking, at my door, cleaned up, dressed up, made right. Not when you've had a really good week. But when you were dead in your transgressions, it was so bad. Imagine yourself in the midst, in the midst of the worst thing you've ever done in your life. And Jesus walks in. Paul says, that's when he saved you. That's the moment that you were saved. And he goes on and says, verse 6, And by this grace, he says, He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, something that always confuses me about this verse. He says it's already happened. Can I just see a show of hands and see how many people have been to heaven? Anyone? But the, the, the phraseology here is very clear and it's very accurately translated. He raised us up with Him. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You Bible students know where I'm going with this. It's a proleptic phrase. That's like ubiquitous. A couple of big words for you this morning. A proleptic phrase. What does that mean? Proleptic simply means it is something that is so absolutely certain to happen that it's spoken of as if it already has. That's how sure your salvation is with Jesus Christ. That's how absolute grace is that once you have been saved by Jesus, given your life to Him, He says, you're already seated in the heavenly places. You are already there. It's not the folding chair you're sitting on. You're already there. It's a done deal. Absolutely certain. So why get up and gather more sticks? If all you're doing is just trying to build a fire. It won't work. But he goes on in verse 7 and says, He's done all this wonderful stuff. He's raised us up, seated us with Him, so that, why? God, so that in the ages to come He may show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, which means it's going to get better. It's going to get better. The best feeling, sense, emotion that you've had regarding grace so far in your life, not even close. He's going to continue to pour out grace upon grace upon grace for all eternity. We haven't even started tasting it yet. Amazing. Amazing grace. And then he says these words. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Last thing I want you to see, that word saved. That word saved in the Greek is in the passive perfect participle. You get that? It's the passive perfect participle in the Greek. And you say, so what? Gang, the passive voice means literally that it happens to me passively. I didn't do it. You've been saved. And Paul says, and this not of yourselves. It's passive. It happened to you. You receive it. That's it. There's not a single stick that you picked up that bought you that grace. It was done to you. And perfect means, and this is just great, it keeps happening. It's a continual process. It doesn't stop. I was saved passively, and I am continually saved. I can't lose it. Listen, that's great. It's past. It's present. It's future. I was saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. So if you believe in Jesus, do you feel well padded here? (laughs) If you're like, okay, so, so things are good. Then don't go around picking up sticks trying to shore up what God has already shored up for you and that is your salvation. I am saved by grace. Would you take a moment and just rest in that this morning? If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and listen, stay tuned in. Don't start pulling up the Bibles and putting away the notes and getting ready because Rick's going into that last little section right before we leave and head for lunch. <coughs> If you're not saved in Jesus, if you're not absolutely, positively, 100% sure that if He came today, you would go straight to heaven, then you just need to accept it. You need to do what He did. You need to work the works of God. What are the works of God? That you believe in Him whom He sent. That you believe in Jesus. And I beg you not to walk out that door this morning without accepting the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. D.L. Moody great pastor of the last century was a hard working man very very busy man it was one Bible study after another going in and out constantly and at one point he walked in to his home just in time to sit down for dinner with his family and then he was going to have to be up again in about half an hour and head back to the church for more Bible study and his kids and his wife said you know what you look weary are you weary and Moody said I weary in the work but I never weary of the work how could he say that because he wasn't picking up sticks to prove himself he was walking and living in grace the things that he did he did because grace just motivated him to do it there's such a difference in the way we live our Christian lives if we understand that principle man the things I do I do for the Lord because he graced me As opposed to, maybe one more thing is what it's going to take to get me home. God doesn't want you living that way. He wants you to live and to walk and to move in grace. Let's pray together.